0: We are continuing our study on the divine inspiration of the scriptures, and we've spent four or five weeks now on the typical significance of the Scripture and how that authorship. Now, when I think of, when I speak about typical significance, what we're talking about is how things in the Old Testament typifies or types of things that we see in the New Testament. So... Uh, to me, this is such an amazing internal evidence. Now, again, we know that the Bible claims to be divinely inspired, and uh, you and I as Christians, we take it at, take that at face value, that God says it's inspired. Guess what? It's inspired. So we take it at that, and we ought to. But yet, there are a lot of people who deny that, uh, but yet we have this this internal evidence that this book is divinely inspired. There's no other way to explain how it fits together. I'm uh, thinking about, you know, whether it be Moses and the first five books, any, any of the prophets, uh, any of those who wrote the poetry. Uh, what did those folks know about Matthew, Mark, or Luke? Nothing at all. And so the fact that it all works together is simply amazing in itself. And again, it shows us that this book could not have been written alone by man. I, was, uh, I told you what we don't have a history channel, but uh, one of the ch- uh, channels we do get is called Story Television. It shows some, I think, older history channel things on it. And this past Saturday, uh, they were talking about the Bible. And how uh, many know you got to watch what people tell you about the Bible? Uh, I remember a long time ago, uh, Brother Bruce Hamlin told me, he said, Brother Rollins, just because they call themselves theologians doesn't mean they're Christians. He's right about that. But nonetheless, uh, there was, uh, it was kind of interesting to, to listen to at least parts of it. And uh, one fellow made the comment well, we believe that the Bible is, was, is, was inspired by God, that God dictated it uh, like you would today in dictation, and then it wrote it down word for word. Well, that's not really true, okay? Uh, God inspired it, uh, and yet all the different writers wrote according to their own style everything they wrote was indeed inspired by God. And what we've been looking at over the last five weeks is the is things that inside the Word of God that show, you know what, this could not have been a, a man by himself. God certainly had to be involved. Let's go back to our foundation verses, Hebrews 10, verse 7. Anybody got that? You Dan, in uh, John five thirty nine. Anybody got that one? Okay. Well, again, these have been our base verses of the last several weeks, uh, but I do want to point out, uh, if we know that Jesus is speaking in Hebrews ten verse seven, he said, "Lo," uh, said I, "Lo, uh, I come to do Thy will, O God." But in the middle of that. He's, he says, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And then in John 5, Jesus talked about searching the scriptures. And he said, they are what testify of me. Now, I know by now you know the answer, but what scripture were they talking about? The Old Testament. And so very, very important, uh, talking about the Old Testament. So the events in the Old Testament were certainly, I mentioned already, actual Happenings they took place in real time, uh, but also they were prefigurations of what was going to come in the New Testament. So I guess my question tonight would be, which is the which is part of the Bible, uh, the Old Testament or the New Testament? <laughs> it's all part of right. Which is more important? All of it's important. Exactly. There's no more or less. Uh, there. It's all important. It's all inspired uh, by God. Now, Jesus said, uh, in the volume of the book, it's, it's written of me. Uh, he talked about the scriptures in John five thirty nine. 39. Uh, they are which testify of me. And so we see throughout the Old Testament a prefiguration or a type typifying the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we talked about a lot of things there, but we see a, a series of a pictorial uh, representations. Uh, later on, uh, we get into the prophets, and there are a lot of prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. Now, I, I hope my memory has served me correctly, but I, I think I read somewhere, there's about 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. And every one of them, if they haven't come true, guess what? They will come true. And so we, we they prophesied of His first coming, and that happened, but it also spoke of His second coming as well, which hasn't happened yet. So we see the prophecies... Uh, of his of Jesus Christ and then of course we know uh, in Galatians Paul said when the fullness of time was come God sent forth his son uh, born of a, of a woman under the law so at the just the right time uh, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 talks about how in times past uh, God revealed himself in different ways but now in these last days he's spoken to us through his son so if you want to give a summary real quick to anybody who asks What's the Bible about? It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus, and it's also, I think, more importantly. But you got to—I don't want to say more important because Christ is certainly the central part of it. The Bible is about God's plan for redemption for you and I. How are really glad He had a plan? Amen. So that's what it's really all about, and we see it tied together very well. We looked at the Pentateuch. We talked about the different sacrifices how they pointed to Jesus Christ. Uh, we talked about how Paul wrote in Romans as well as in Corinthians, how they were written for our admonition as a warning for us. So we see it from the Old Testament. Uh, we also saw how God worked in, in creation the same way he worked in new creation, so they're linked together there. Uh, we saw back in Genesis uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, God made a covering for their sin. And why did God do that? It's the only way to do it. And if we are going to be covered in our sin today, God has to do it. And does it now through the blood of Jesus Christ. We talked about the different offerings of Cain and Abel, how God rejected one and received the other. Uh, we talked about Noah's Ark. Uh, we looked at the, uh, Israel delivered from Egypt. and all of this typifies what takes place in the New Testament. So again, uh, actual events. But almost everything in the Old Testament has a very deep spiritual value for our life. Every battle the Israelites fought, uh, every time there was a change in government, every detail of all that uh, ceremonies they had, uh, any biography that we see in the Word of God, is designed to instruct us, and it's designed for our edification. I was thinking in Paul when he wrote uh, to the Church of Corinth in chapter 10, he talked about the time... Uh, when they were all baptized with Moses, they all drank of that same rock, they followed that cloud, and yet uh, you know, they, none of them made it in the promised land. Now that was then. Why would Paul bring that up? He brought it up because it, 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 it was an event. It actually happened. But Paul says it's also meant to be a warning to us today. Be careful how we walk with God. We have to be obedient to God. So again, designed for our... Our edification designed for our uh, instruction and so uh, well we've got what 66 books in this bible which of the books are not essential none of them they're all essential everything in the word of god is very very essential so nothing is unessential and from the beginning to the end of this book the holy ghost God's holy word; it testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at some inanimate object like the ark, uh, and again, I know you know the answer. But what was the where was the only safe place to be when the flood came? In the ark. If you weren't there, guess what? Yeah, you drowned. You got destroyed. We talked about the manna. Uh, what was the manna for? Do what, Dan? So, they didn't have any bread, they had no food. And so, God provided of the bread of God for them. Uh, again, Jesus claimed to be the bread of life, and he is. So we see the connection there. Uh, we talked about the time uh, when they uh, began to complain because they didn't have any meat to eat. Uh, they wanted, uh, God sent quail, and enough, they ate so much it almost made them sick, sick to eating it. But nonetheless, God was just pleased because they complained. He sent some uh, poisonous snakes among the camp, and he told Moses, "Put a uh, serpent on a brazen rod, on a brass rod, lift it up, and if anybody is bitten by that any of those serpents, if they'll just look through that snake on the pole, they will be healed." How dumb can you be? What can a brass serpent on a pole do for you? You know why it worked? Because God said it would. Now, now listen to me. Listen to me very carefully. Suppose we were there and we got bit by one of those poison snakes, and we thought, "You know what, Moses? That's dumb. I'm not going to look on that thing. I refuse to do it." you what? Not how I wanted to, though, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It, it doesn't matter. And you know, know, Jesus in John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus, and he said, except I be lifted up. If If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. So he talked about, he referred to that brass serpent in the Old Testament. You think Nicodemus knew what he was talking about? Sure he did. Nicodemus read that. And now we have Jesus comparing himself to that brass serpent. So we see there in the Old Testament, now, now hold on for a minute. I know that Moses was God's God's man for the hour, for forty <laughs> years, as he led them out of Egypt. Uh, Joshua very important, Caleb very important in that. I, I wonder when they read in John chapter three that Jesus would claim to be that serpent. They didn't. They didn't think about that. It wasn't like, you know what, I know Christ is coming and he'll have to have an illustration, so we'll throw in this brazen serpent here in Numbers. Not at all. They had no idea. Now, hold on. Was there really a brass serpent in the book of Numbers? Yes. An actual event. But understand, it also had a deep spiritual meaning because that brass serpent pointed to what Jesus Christ would do one day And of course, he does it for us. We also uh, looked at some, those were inanimate objects. We looked at living creatures like the Passover lamb. And uh, we know what that was, chapter 12 of Exodus. And how uh, during the night of of the Exodus, the first night, they had to kill that lamb and put the blood over the top of the door, the sides of the door. And uh, we also know that uh, they would sacrifice bullocks and goats and rams. And all of those things, did they really happen? Yes. Uh, Were they things that God prescribed for the time? Yes. But but understand, there was a greater spiritual significance. All of those sacrifices, including the Passover lamb, every one of them pointed to the greatest sacrifice of all. Now, again, we, we talked about Moses Sunday night in our message and how uh, Moses and God spoke face-to-face, a remarkable thing if you think about it. But again, I think a lot of what Moses wrote about, a lot of what he experienced, he had no idea the spiritual significance it would have in the New Testament. But who knew that? God did. So again, divine inspiration. God used man, absolutely, to write his book, but he also, it was inspired, it was breathed out by God. Also, uh, there's some institutions that were set up in the Old Testament. And uh, one of them, of course, uh, was the uh, Passover institution. And again, uh, we talked about that in quite a bit of detail as far as the Passover itself. But let's go to Exodus 12:21. The the instructions are very, uh, very specific, and it was not just to be a one-night thing, but from that point on, it became an institution for the the Jews, for the Israelites, and they were to do it every year. Now, if you study the the Old Testament, you know that during the time of the kings, it it, it ceased for the most part, and they may have done it once or twice when they had some good kings in Judah, but, but not so much. But nonetheless, it was to be an institution they would carry out every year, once a year, And it was important for the Jews to remember how God had brought them out of Egypt. And so, again, you have to wonder, when those things happened originally, I I don't think whether it be Moses or anybody other than God understood the deep spiritual significance of what was going on. Now, uh, uh, again, uh, thinking about, uh, and I'll have this verse in in our overhead tonight, but in John chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist is speaking to a, to a group of people, uh, probably baptizing. And he looks over and he sees Jesus. And he makes the statement, he says, and he points to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So, would well, the Jews know what a Lamb of God was? Yes. They had sacrificed the Passover lamb over and over. And other lambs had sacrificial lamb, if you will, through the year. And so they would have understood. John was identifying Jesus as the true Passover lamb. First Corinthians 5, 7. Now, in case you are wondering, the Apostle Paul, thank you, by the way, Phyllis, uh, under the interest of the Holy Spirit, talks about uh, getting rid of the old leaven, which leaven is the type of sin, uh, that we might be a new lump uh, as we are, the sin is taken away. And then he makes a statement, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So what's Paul saying about Jesus? He's what? He's the Passover Lamb, and that's what that all pointed to. And again, I don't, I, I, unless I miss my guess, I don't think they understood the depth of the spiritual significance of the Passover—that one day God would send the final, final Passover Lamb, and that, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. So you had the institution of the Passover, okay, and even that pointed to Jesus Christ. Uh, but another. Uh, Institution, I'm, I, I don't like using that word. Ceremony, I guess they did every year, was the feast of the first fruits, and during that time they had what they call the waving of the first fruits, and it was commanded by the by the Lord, and the first fruits took place during the week, the, the celebration of Passover, and actually Passover was a part of the first fruits, and it was celebrated on the 16th day of the Jewish month of, of, of Nisan and two days after the Passover festival began and somewhere in March or early April of our time. Now, this Feast of the fruits it reminded the Israelites how God provided for them in the promised land. How God provided for them. And so, ultimately, the Israelites were to acknowledge that God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, but He also provided them a place to live and to grow crops. Now, somebody mentioned a moment ago, for 40 years they were in a desert. What kind of crops could you grow out there? None. And God said, I want to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. A land that is rich. A land where you can grow crops. And, of course, who gave them that land? God did. Deuteronomy 26. Look at the first three verses. Thank you, Phyllis. Now, let me kind of walk through this for a minute. Give me a minute here. Uh, first of all, of course, God is speaking to Moses. And He says to Moses, there's going to come a time when you come into the land that I'm giving you. Implying what? Hasn't happened yet, but what, Dan? It's going to happen. It is going to happen. And and God says, when you begin to dwell there, so this feast of the first fruits was not celebrated during the 40 years. This is when you get into the land, okay? He said, what I want you to do, I want you to gather the first. What's first mean? Yeah. If you plant corn, that first year goes who? It goes to God. Before you eat anything, the first fruits have to be given to the Lord. So get that. Take the first of all the fruit of the earth in that land. Put it in a basket. And go to the place that God shall choose to put his name. Now, if you're a student of the scriptures, uh, you'll know that when they get into the book of Judges and they get into the promised land, uh, the first place the tabernacle was set up was, uh, I mean, for a permanent place was Shiloh. And it was there. So that's where they were to go and so they take that basket of first fruits and present it to the Lord. So again, they were required to bring a sheep of the first grain that they harvested every year, uh, a bundle or a cluster of the grains, and the priest would take that sheep, that first fruit of the grains, and he would wave it before the Lord the day after The Sabbath. Now, the Israelites were not allowed to eat any of the crop until the day the first portion was brought before the priest. So that tells us the first fruits belong to God. And the people of Israel acknowledged that God, not them, not themselves, they acknowledged that God was the source of their crops and the source of their provision overall. So, seven weeks after the first, the Feast of the fruits, the Israelites were to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Now, the Feast of Weeks was one of the three solemn feasts that all Jewish males were required to travel to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is, these three major feasts, these three major feasts, Each of them required first fruits to be offered at the temple, but each one was for a different crop. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles again required first fruits, and it was the olive and grape harvest for the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of the Weeks involved the offering of the first wheat harvest, and the Feast of the First Fruits which happened within Passover week, was specifically uh, for the offering of the first of the barley harvest. Now think about this. Notice the details of all this. Bringing the first to God. Now by the way, one of the reasons that the Feast of Weeks is first, it's a lighter grain barley is, ripens quicker than wheat, And so it would be the first of the first fruit offering on the Jewish calendar. Now, it also marked the first harvest of the year. And again, it was to magnify in their mind the symbolism to remind them that God was the one who provided for them. God was the one. And the first thing the Israelites would do, after a long and laborious season of growing crops, they would come to the priest and they would express how thankful they were for what God had provided for them and how that God had met their needs. Years ago, I was a young Christian and my grandmother had been saved for quite a few years and a very godly woman. And uh, she had another lady in her church. Her name was Billy Rainey. And we always called her, affectionately, Sister Billy. And another godly woman. And I'll never forget, when Sister Billy's husband died, uh, he had a, I don't know exactly what he did, but a lot of uh, expensive tools, wrenches and things like that. And, of course, Sister Billy would never use them again. And so they, I don't know if they auctioned or they had a sale, But evidently, the sale brought about a whole lot of money. And my grandmother was telling me about it. And uh, Sister Billy said, well, do I tithe on this as a whole or what? And i never forget what my grandmother said to her. I didn't understand at the time. She said, Sister Billy, remember the law of the first fruits. Meaning what? The first part goes to God. Has that changed? No, it is still true today. And like the other Jewish festivals in the Old Testament, the Feast of the First Fruits prophetically foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah and His ministry. The biggest. Now, hold on a minute, okay? Let me back up for a minute. When you're harvesting that crop and you take those first fruits, and I know you're taking it to God, but what are you expecting from that crop? Is that all of it? Now, there's more to come. There's more where that came from. So keep that in mind. Leviticus 23, look at verses 10 through 12. you picture that in your mind you bring that sheave of grain and you give it to the priest what he do with it he weighs it before the Lord signifying what yeah thank you Lord this is our first fruit and we are offering it to you it's similar to that exactly yeah Following through with God's instruction. But also notice that day when you offered it, verse twelve. You just read that, Dan, the Bible says you're going to offer a lamb without blemish of the first year. The first fruits. Go to first Corinthians fifteen, verse twenty. Okay, we read about the first fruits in Corinthians. But where do we first hear about first fruits? In the Old Testament. Again, looking at the typification of the old in the New Testament. And here we see Paul referring to Christ and his resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What happened to Christ when they buried him 3 days later? He arose. He's the first fruit. Implying what? There's more to come. He is the first fruit. And just as the first portion of the harvest in the Old Testament, when they gave that, it anticipated a full harvest still to come. And when Christ raised from the dead, it anticipated a full resurrection to come for all of those who die in Christ. And, folks, that is so amazing. Again, an actual festival in the Old Testament. But look at the deep spiritual significance. And now we realize, in fact, that's why the Bible, Jesus said, because I live, because He lives, we will live also. He is that first fruit. So here's what's interesting. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, Him being the first fruit, It signifies the very beginning of a brand new creation promised in the Old Testament. And we see it come true in the New Testament. Isaiah 43, verse 18 and 19. Okay. now I know Isaiah is writing this and God has inspired him to do so but I wonder if Isaiah understood the depth of what he was writing forget about the old things and what were the Jews known for remembering the past well there's church people live in the past too by the way but Isaiah, said, forget about that. God says that, and God said, "I'm going to do a new thing, and it's going to come. It's going to spring forward, and you're not even going to, and, and, and you're you not even going to know it. I'll make a way in the wilderness. And how many know He's done it? He's done it through Christ. Isaiah 65 or 17." God, in the Old Testament, promised a brand new creation. He told Isaiah chapter 43, forget about the old. I am going to bring some new things. Isaiah 65, I'm going to create a new heaven, a new earth, and the old will not be remembered or come to your mind. Romans eight twenty three. Here in Romans 8, Paul says to us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the first fruit of the redemption that God is going to bring to his creation. And Paul said, Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, and we're waiting for that to come to fruition, the redemption of our body. So thinking about the ancient Israelites, the feast of the first fruits during the Passover time was an opportunity for them to show their thanksgiving to God for all the ways He provided for them. And for you and I today, that was a foreshadowing and a reminder of what Christ has done for us, redeeming all creation, but not only that, what He will do when He comes back again. Now, I find we read a moment ago in Romans 8, 23... And Paul is writing there. He's been born again. But Paul says, I am still groaning. Because I know there's coming a day that even my own body will be redeemed. And that's what the first fruits pointed to. So we see the feast of the first fruits. And Christ is that first fruit for us. And because He lives, we live also. Now, folks, let me make sure we understand this, okay? Uh, Because we know that death is an enemy. And if the Lord tarries, we're all going to go that way. But, my friend, we have a sure promise of God's Word. He was the first fruit, and those are His are going to follow after. And that's why Jesus said, because I live, you live also. Folks, that is a wonderful promise of assurance. Knowing that our hearts are right with God. That one day, if the Lord tears, He will raise our bodies back up and it will be redeemed. But another institution was the Feast of the Pentecost. And it involved two loaves baked with leaven. And the whole point of that was the uniting into one body the Jews and the Gentiles. And again, unless I miss my guess, when that festival was instituted, do you think the Jews really thought that one day God would include the Gentiles? No. But I want you to notice something about this. Pentecost was the celebration of the early weeks of harvest. And I mentioned earlier, in Palestine there were two harvests each year, one for barley, one for wheat. The early harvest came in May and June, and the latter harvest came in the fall of the year. But you had two harvests. But Pentecost was the celebration of the beginning of the early wheat harvest which meant that Pentecost always fell sometime between the middle of the month of May and in early June, somewhere in there. Now, there were several festivals, celebrations, or observances, that took place before Pentecost. You had the Passover, you had the unleavened bread, and the Feast of Fruits. But again... The Feast of First Fruits was a celebration of the beginning of the barley harvest. And that's how they were able to figure out the date of Pentecost. So the Bible says in the Old Testament that you would go to the day of the celebration of first fruits. And beginning on that day, you would count off 50 days. And the first celebration of first fruits. And the 50th day would be the day of Pentecost. So, first fruit is the beginning of the barley harvest, and Pentecost is the beginning of the wheat harvest. Leviticus 23, look at verses 15 through 17. Thank you, Jason. Uh, I want to ask you a question, Jason. In verse 17, uh, God gives Moses the instructions uh, for baking these uh, loaves of bread. Did you notice anything strange about one of the ingredients here? Why do you say that, Jason? Yeah, most of them was no leaven. But this time they were to be baked with leaven. Now, remember, what does leaven represent? What? What's the use? But what does it represent spiritually? Sin. We'll be in the book of Matthew again Sunday. And uh, Jesus tells the disciples to beware, in our lesson next week, uh, to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples are away. oh, no, man, we forgot to bring bread. And now you're mad because we forgot to bring bread. And that's what he's talk- that wasn't what he was talking about at all. So leaven usually has a negative connotation. But this bread, fine flour, baked with leaven, and you're right, it, it is the yeast. Acts <laughs> chapter 1 The disciples concerned about the kingdom of God when it would be set up. And Jesus, for lack of a better way to put it, said, it's none of your business. But he gives them specific instructions in verse 4 of Acts 1. Anybody got that? the promise of the Father. (coughs) Okay? What does wait mean? Say what? Yeah, don't go anywhere else. Wait. Now also notice this. Whatever the promise was, they didn't have to pray it down. Why? Why? was promised. Now, did they pray? Sure. But this is a promise. And if God makes a promise, He keeps it. Now, it's interesting, as we continue reading in Acts chapter 2, we find that this period of waiting culminated on the day of Pentecost. Now, by the way, Pentecost is the translated Greek name for the Feast of Weeks, and it means 50th. Acts 2, verse 1. In one accord, in one place. When the day of Pentecost was fully know that that was the day the Spirit of God fell and He manifests Himself in split tongues of fire that's rested on their heads so did the coming of the Holy Spirit that day is that what brought Pentecost no Pentecost had been celebrated for years In fact, in Paul's last journey to Jerusalem, he wants to say goodbye to the church at Ephesus, and he's in a hurry. So rather than going inland, he hasn't come to meet him on the shore because his, his heart's desire was to be in Jerusalem before Pentecost. He wanted to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem. Now remember, Pentecost was one of the three major feasts where every male Jew was required to return to Jerusalem. And if you read the rest of the of Acts chapter two, where did people come from? All over. I mean, there's a list of countries. But remember, they were all Jews. And when the New Testament church was founded, the initial members were Israelites. So one of the two loaves that we read about in Leviticus 23 pictures or foreshadows as part of first fruits converted Israelites. So hold on. For the most part on the day of Pentecost do you understand the first fruits were Jews. They were the first fruits. But what does first fruit imply? There's more to come. Wow! I'm sure Moses understood that when he wrote about that. I doubt it. Because it was an actual festival, an institution. They celebrated. in the They were going to celebrate in the promised land. But there's no way they could have seen the spiritual significance of that. Now, God could have revealed it to them if He chose to. So, again... One of those two loaves on Pentecost, instituted thousands of years before the Acts chapter two, verse one, foreshadowed those Jews that would be converted on this day in Acts chapter two. But it's also interesting what we read here in Acts two is the record of a partial fulfillment of the meaning of Pentecost. Remember, how many loaves were there? Two loaves. In verse 16, Peter explains that. Acts chapter 2, anybody got that? Okay. Now, He's quoting from Joel. And you can't miss the fact how broadly inclusive the statement is in verse 21 of Acts 2. Let's read that. What? Not just Jews... There's a second loaf. You have the first fruits. Now, again, first fruits of the Jews. But then Peter's quoting from Joel, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Absolutely. And that's true. And here's what gets me. First of all, why would Peter quote from Joel? It's Old Testament. Why would he do it anyway? He's inspired by God to do that. God has put it on his heart. So Peter quotes it in verse 21. Whosoever, not just Jews... Not to whosoever. Now think about this. On the day of Pentecost, he quoted that. So I'm thinking, you know what? Peter understands he gets it. So he'll never have a problem taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But guess what? He had a problem. God sent that vision three times. Three times he tells Peter, rise and eat. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. God says, how dare you call anything I've created unclean? Yeah. That's what happens when you try to take a nap on an empty stomach. And downstairs, frying chicken, Peter taking a nap. And he's hungry, and God sends him a dream. And it wasn't long after that, men come. And then knock on Simon the Tanner's gate and said, Hey, if Peter are here? God sent us here to get him. And even then God said, Peter, there's some men coming. And they're going to ask you to go with them. And Peter don't ask any questions. Just what? Just go. I say it almost every time I read Acts two. It is Peter's first, and in my opinion, his greatest sermon. But as we continue in Acts two, Peter preaches about repentance and baptism. He preaches the uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then in verse thirty nine, he opens up the opportunity that God is presenting. Look at verse thirty nine. Acts 2. The promise is to you, to you Jews. And that promise is to your children. But Peter said, it's also for those who are far off. Who are those? That's a Gentile. The rest of the world. Whosoever's. Amen. Yes, indeed. So there in Acts chapter 2, and already verse 36, Peter addresses, and he calls them all the house of Israel. And on this momentous day of Pentecost, that's what Peter says. But what he didn't realize, there was going to come a day soon, in Acts chapter 10, that God would send Peter to preach the same message of salvation to another group of people. And through those remarkable revelations we talked about earlier, God caused Peter to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. Acts chapter 10, look what Peter says in verse 34 and 35. many know that for most of his life, Peter was sure that God uh, would choose the, uh, he was a respecter of the, of the Jews? We've got it. But now God's taught him a lesson. God is not a respecter of persons. And Peter said, God revealed to me that in every nation there are those that fear Him and work righteous and they're accepted with Him. So two loaves in Leviticus 23. One to the first fruit of the Jews. The second loaf to the first fruit of converted Gentiles. Romans 15, verse 15 and 16. In your mind, listen to me, folks. There wasn't a Jew alive that didn't think that God would not accept the Jews as a first fruit. Isn't that true? But what about Gentiles? Did they believe that? No. But Paul says that the offering of the Gentile, the waving of that second loaf, would be accepted by the Holy Ghost. And you can and there's people telling me this is not inspired of God. Who are they kidding? Looking internally. And We're not finished with that part yet, but we're going to stop there for tonight. What a God.